All right, guys, welcome to the Serial Spirits Podcast Flashback Friday. It's me, your host, Shay, and I'm here to introduce our first Flashback Friday episode, part one of the Herb Baumeister story, The Haunting of Fox Hollow Farm. Guys, this is a creepy story. If you know anything about this story, you're in for a treat. And uh, we recorded this episode uh, almost two years ago. It's from season one. Yeah, we wanted to go ahead and replay it for you guys because they, the response that we've got for the last few uh, Throwback Thursdays we've done has been pretty good. So we wanted you guys to hear these episodes that we had released in season one that you can no longer find on any streaming app. So we're going to be putting them out. It's probably going to happen for the next six weeks. So yeah, you guys are going to get two doses of the Serial Spirits podcast in a week, so enjoy. But before we uh, we get into that, I, I had some troubling news that I found out last night. A girl that I'd known a few years ago, she actually dated a good friend of mine. She's a paranormal investigator. We've ran in the same circle of friends for, you know, probably over a decade now, and uh, she has gone missing. And it's very troubling because she is a mother. The story that that we've been told is that she left her house between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. on September 30th of this year. She left her purse behind, her cell phone behind, credit cards, all that stuff was left. And she, the story is she just got in her car and drove away, said she was going to the beach. Uh, This happened in Venice Beach, Florida, or Venice, Florida, I'm sorry. Guys, by the time I'm recording this, she still hasn't been seen. So by the time this comes out, you know, we may have different news. But I just wanted to make you guys aware of this story. Her name is Tracy Lynn Riker, white female, 5'2", petite, 120 pounds, blonde hair, brown eyes, and she has a heart tattoo on her ring finger. She left her home in a 2011 green Nissan Xterra with a Florida license plate number, Florida license plate number, I'm sorry, P08116. That's Peter Oscar 816. If you guys have any information about Tracy or her whereabouts or have heard anything or seen anything, please call the Venice PD at 941-486-2444. Again, that's 941-486-2444. It's case number 20-1562. Guys, this, you know, I, I knew Tracy a little bit there and she's a very kind person and she's a mother. And we want to see this case resolved. We want her to come home safely back to her her kids and her husband. So if you guys had, have any information or are able to pass this information along, please do so. Again, that number, the Venice PD in Venice, Florida, 941-486-2444. Thanks, guys. Now on to our Flashback Friday. The following episode contains material of a graphic nature and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. The Indiana Department of Transportation maintains over 11,000 miles of roadway, and we paint those miles of roadway each year. And this is just an isolated incident that happened. The drive-by striping, <laughs> you know, whatever. Herb Baumeister of Carmel saw it all. I said to my son, they're going to hit that raccoon with the spray gun, and sure enough, they just striped right over its face and neck. You know, didn't even move it, you know, no effort to, you know, get it out of the way. 
So I happened to have a Polaroid with me, so I took a shot of the thing. A raccoon which met its demise on the yellow line became one with the paint. The raccoon has since been removed. This is all that's left. This was just, you know, a, a painter should have had a chalk line drawn around his career by state officials. There was no excuse for that. I mean, the poor thing deserved a better fate than that. So just what is the explanation for this? For that, we went to the state highway department itself. The Defendant's Commission of these four murders over a 10-day period is one of the worst killing sprees in the history of this state. Skin them sometimes, uh, slit them, slit them all the way open. Uh. I'm here looking for the spirits of anybody that still remains. I have a device in my hand. If you would like to talk to it, please come forward. Tell me your story. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. Then I felt like I really offered society something. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Welcome to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. It's me, your host, Brendan Shea, and my beautiful co-host... Annie Weibel, what's up, Shea Bay? Hey, how's it going? We are back and we have something exciting. When we came up with the platform for this podcast, we wanted to make it about murders that cause hauntings, right? So we found a case that, you know, it's a notorious place in Carmel, Indiana, and uh, you heard a little bit of the intro clip of a soundbite of an interview for this man that we're going to talk about today. He was a supposed serial killer. He was never convicted of his crimes because he, you know, we'll get into why he was never convicted. Yeah, don't reveal too much just yet because it's a damn good story. But, you know, we, uh, we decided that this would be a great story to really launch the platform of what Serial Spirits is about because this place where he lived, he would take his victims back and he would kill them, dispose of their bodies. And this place is notoriously haunted now. So today, we are proud to introduce Herb Baumeister to our repertoire of serial killers that we're going to be covering. And this is going to be a two-part series because... There's a lot to the story, and there's a lot not just to Herb Baumeister himself, but to the claims of the people who have visited this place, uh, his former home, and uh, as far as forensics, investigation, paranormal investigators, everything, there's just a whirlwind of shit that gets entailed into this story. So we're going to jump right into this, and... um, you know, we, uh, we're super excited about this episode. We are really looking forward to making this an amazing story for you guys, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we will. Right, Weebs? I think we will. So I've officially uh, created a title for this oh, series. let's hear it, Weebs. Let's hear it. So this is going to be Part 1, Herb Baumeister, Homicide to Haunting. Yes. And yes. that is a perfect thing because it's exactly... 
what we think happened. And, you know, we're going to cover the first part. We're going to talk about Herb Baumeister himself. We're going to talk about his childhood. We're going to talk about his early years. We're going to talk about his uh, journey to the dark side, I guess you can say. And uh, part two, we'll talk about some of the hauntings that occur um, why we believe that is and get into some theories about all that stuff. So we really hope you guys will enjoy this episode about Herb Baumeister, the uh, I-70 Strangler. Supposedly. Supposedly. The I-70 Strangler. Okay, so you ready? Oh, I'm ready. Let's get right into this. All shit. right, so here's here we go. Here's the Herb Baumeister homicide to haunting. Hold on. You know, you're going to be listening to this episode. Probably you're going to hear some clanking around. I do have a glass of whiskey. I had to like pour myself, make a mixed drink for this episode because we're going to get into it. This guy was a, uh, he was a pretty creepy man to begin with, but this is, uh, this is going to get real. So, uh, it's going to get real. You ready to get real with her? Let's get real. Here we go. Her Baumeister was the man at the center of one of the nation's most famous and still technically unsolved serial killer mysteries during the 1980s and 1990s in Indiana and Ohio. During this time, 27 men disappeared, most of them young gay men who disappeared after a night on the town. Over the course of 16 years, the mystery deepened, eventually linking the evidence back to her Baumeister. However, the case remains technically open, as the remains of most of these men have never been recovered, and questioning of Baumeister ended in 1996 when he took his own life. Was Baumeister the man that they dubbed the I-70 Strangler? Warning, the following story does contain some graphic details, so listener discretion is advised. It's going to get juicy. As real, like, that's, like, <laughs> our main platform. Like, if you have small children, we do say naughty words, and we do describe in detail as much as we can, as much as we know, what this killer did to his victim. So, yeah, it's going to get... It's going to get pretty graphic. We're going to so. talk about some diddles. Some diddles. So, yeah, discretion is advised from this point on. All right. Herb Baumeister was born April 7th, 1947 to Dr. Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was the oldest of four children, and his father was an extremely successful anesthesiologist. By all means, Herb had a normal childhood. However, during his teenage years, the situation changed. Herb developed an obsession on all things vile in nature. He developed a dark sense of humor, began lashing out at his teachers. Rumors even circulated about Herb urinating on his teacher's desks. You know what? I can stop you. (laughs) Some of the things you described, like you go back and and say what you did. Like you said about uh, he, he... not urinated. The line before that, you said something about, you know, before the urination part. Oh, he developed a dark sense of humor and was lashing out at his teachers. Oh, well, I, I have a dark sense of humor. You do, but, but do you piss on people's personal no, property? No, but as you heard last episode, I do piss in creepy ponds. That You uh, do. If have... you, yeah. If you missed the uh, Mothman mes- episode, you got to go back and re-listen to that one. You actually can hear Shay pissing into a radioactive pond. So welcome to Serial Spirits, where we not only discuss serial killers, their graphic crimes, but we also talk about peeing and pooing. Our bathroom etiquette. Yeah, our bathroom So far, etiquette. just your bathroom etiquette. Yeah. So that's so two episodes go. in a row where we've mentioned the, the 
urine. All right. Urine. So you piss into radioactive ponds, but her Baumeister pissed on his teacher's desk. You know what? I bet his teacher was pissed off. I bet she was pissed, and pissed off. On. All right. Sorry. All right. Sorry to interrupt. It's okay. All right. So at this point, Herb's teachers uh, began reaching out to his parents for help. Dr. Baumeister sent his son for a series of tests, which determined that Herb was schizophrenic and suffered from multiple personality disorder. Whether or not Herb received any treatment for his conditions is unknown. Herb continued his socially inadequate ways. He maintained excellent grades but failed to fit in with his peers. High school left him alone and segregated. He began college at Indiana University, dropping out once but then returning as an anatomy major. In 1967, Herb met a journalism major named Juliana Sater, and they married in 1971. Questionably, six months into the marriage, Herb's father had him institutionalized for unknown reasons. No matter his mental function, Juliana stuck with Herb, encouraging his love of wanting to own his own business. Herb was able to obtain gainful employment as his father got him a job at the Indianapolis Star newspaper and then onto the State Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Herb's co-worker stated that his demeanor would vary from day to day, sometimes yearning for constant gratitude from his superiors, but at other times being bossy and aggressive towards his co-workers. Again, Baumeister was the outcast. Not only was his behavior erratic, it sometimes erred on the side of inappropriate. One Christmas, Herb sent a holiday card to all of his co-workers, picturing himself and another man dressed in holiday drag. Wow. Yeah. What would you do if you got a holiday card? I mean, I guess nowadays it's more... Well, you got to remember, this was the 1970s. So people really didn't find a whole lot of humor in this. They yeah. just thought it was weird as shit. Yeah, and, and I can get that. And, you know, nowadays, more of the, you know everything is more acceptable. You have some of these people that just come off as just... Like, you know, Herb Baumeister, obviously he had these deep, dark, this dark side to him that, you know, would later come to fruition. But, you know, it, it's different if somebody's doing that for, you know, a joking kind of thing. But I think there was a, a an alternative means behind Herb's, uh, you know... What am I trying to say? His, 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 uh, I think he wanted really to let that side of him out. Maybe he was just testing the waters with people because at this time he's married. True. Yes, he's married. And so, but maybe if he's got this, you know, these inner demons that he's kind of dealing with, maybe this was like his way of just sticking his toe in, in the water and being like, oh, well, if I show up to work and drag, what are people going to say? You know, would they be accepting or, or would they think I was crazy? I want to know who the other man was. That's the, the curious thing. But it's not just that. Also, it could be the simple fact that, you know, a lot of these people who become or who are serial killers, they have that whole mindset that they want to shock. They want to not 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 manipulate manipulating is another thing that they, they do but they want to shock people and they want it to be like remembered you know what i mean and they do it, it for the shock value and it starts out as these small little things that put yourself in the spotlight by doing these strange things and you think in yourself that it is normal for you because you know i can say that about myself Sometimes I get around people and as soon as I get comfortable, myself comes out and I start telling little perverted jokes and stuff like that. That's just how I am. And some people just cannot handle it. And, 
you know, then you got to watch, you know, what you say and what you do. I'm not saying I'm a serial killer. Yet. Yet. (laughs) (laughs) But I can say that, you know, I can see, I can, you know, relate to Herb on this level where he did something for shock value and just to, like you said, test the waters to see what people were going to do. But he was harboring other feelings and other things in his mind. And to him, maybe this was just a normal thing. And, you know, he thought it was funny and other people were like, this is And I wonder, too, who was that man? Was that somebody that eventually became one of his victims? Because, I mean, we get into the story and you're going to learn. Most of these 27 men were never seen again. Anything. Any parts. No parts. Well, there were All parts. parts gone. There was parts. Of some of them. Of some All right. Of them. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, we okay. are getting ahead of All ourselves. All right. So, so. Get back into it, Weeby. All right. So, naturally, rumors regarding Herb's sexuality came into play. After a decade at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, Herb's go-getter ways earned him a promotion. However, the promotion was short-lived. In 1985, Herb was terminated after urinating on a letter that was addressed to the then-governor of Indiana, Robert Orr. This act also explained and put to rest any questions as to who had urinated on Herb's manager's desk several months earlier. So let's get into the urination again. Okay. We'll talk a little bit about urination. I'm sorry to keep jumping in as you're telling the story. No, do, please but, do. like we said, there used to be a, and I'm, I feel really stupid right now because I didn't do my research a little bit here because I wanted to talk about this triangle that used to, that was, it was a triangle that this man invented that had to do with serial killers. And one of them, one of the things that he said like was their bedwetters. Yes. So this kind of makes sense in a way because there's an obsession with like, you know, the most defiling thing you can do, I guess, to somebody you dislike is piss on them, throw shit at them, like, you know, like you're a monkey or something like that, throwing shit at people. Right. Or do do something vile with a bodily fluid. I mean, that's it's disgusting. It's a disgusting thing to do. And it adds the shock value to something like, I can't believe he did that. But it just it's weird that that whole thing comes into play with some serial killers had problems with urinesis. Is that what it's called? Is that the word? Well, bedwetting. You're talking about bedwetting. Right. Yeah. So there are traits that if you go back to a lot of these serial killers, number one, which we've talked about mommy issues, you know, their mothers were, they all had some type of really messed up situation with their mother, bedwetters, things that they, you know, in childhood probably could not have controlled. But I think in Herb's situation he did it because he felt like people were beneath him and that was his way of belittling these people that probably told him what to do his teachers his managers people that he felt like he was under their thumb well you know i'm just gonna literally take a piss on you now well he had obviously had a problem with authority he was the man and he didn't want somebody stepping all over him which is another thing like these serial killers try to be in control. They want to be in control all the time. By the time Herb was fired from the BMV, he and Juliana had started a family. Daughter Marie was born in 1979, son Eric in 1981, and another daughter Emily in 1984. By this point, Juliana was a stay-at-home mom, but returned to work upon Herb's termination. 
Herb became a stay-at-home dad, doting carefully on each of his three children. However, the turmoil in his life was just beginning. During this time, Herb's father died. In 1985, he was arrested for a hit-and-run while driving intoxicated. He was also charged with stealing a friend's car, but was able to have the charges dismissed. He bounced from one job to the next, but soon began working at a thrift store. At first, he considered the job beneath him, but he saw potential in earnings. Herb borrowed $4,000 from his mother, and he and Juliana opened their own thrift store that they called Save-A-Lot. The store was stocked with gently used clothes and home items, and after a year in business, success finally found Herb Baumeister. He quickly opened a second store. After three years in business, the Baumeisters were rich. So Save-A-Lot, is that, was that like the... Uh grocery store that we have I around I don't here. think so. I mean, here in the South, I don't know if they have these in the North and out West, but there um, is a grocery chain called Save-A-Lot. This was like a thrift store. This was like a secondhand store. Okay. So like almost like a... It was like a Goodwill. A it was Goodwill. like a really nice Goodwill. Like a consignment store. Right. Like you bring your stuff there, they, they give you money for it or whatever. Okay. So it wasn't like... Because I've been to a lot of Save-A-Lots and they are a grocery store, almost like a... Uh, IGA or a... Uh, Aldi? Yeah, like an Aldi's. You just don't have to take your quarter for your own plastic bags? No, yeah, a quarter for your plastic bags and your carts. And your carts. Right. You, you got to pay for your cart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cart rental. So in 1991, the Baumeisters purchased their dream home, an 18-acre horse ranch called da, 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 Fox Hollow Farms. The farm, located in an upscale area just outside of Indianapolis, was a million-dollar mansion that included horse stables and an indoor pool. Baumeister was now known around town as a well-respected millionaire who often donated money to local charities. Owning a family-run business was not always easy, though. Herb treated Juliana not as a partner, but as an employee who was below him. This took a toll not only on the business, but on the marriage as well, and the Baumeisters would separate several times over the course of the next few years. While the Baumeisters upheld their reputation in the community, it became apparent that their home life was less than desirable. The Save-A-Lot stores had a reputation of being clean and well-organized. The Baumeister mansion, though, was another story. The grounds and stables became overgrown with weeds. The rooms of the house were equally neglected. The one room that Herb maintained, even obsessed over in the house, was the pool room. The bar was always stocked, and Herb filled the area with decor, including dressed-up mannequins, which gave the effect of a 24-7 pool party. Juliana began leaving the house more and more frequently, taking the children with her to stay at Herb's mother on Lake Wallacey. Herb stayed behind to, quote, run the stores. This, in retrospect, was the beginning of the end for the Baumeisters, and the darkest days for the family would soon begin. So I think my first question would be, how are you with somebody in the way that you're, she was with Herb, they're married, they own a business together, and you not suspect some of this shit? think that you do know you suspect this stuff right away, and you just, your mind makes you not want to believe that it's true. I could see that because, you know, at this point, they've got three small children. They are, you know, headfirst in this business that they run together. They just bought this lavish home. So they had it really good, you know. So maybe she just didn't want to give up the lifestyle. I don't know. 
But to me, it would just seem so damn obvious that something was really screwed up with him. Well, like I said, you it's it comes down to that whole thing. A lot of times these people, serial killers, are very good at hiding the secret life. They come off as everyday normal people. They come off as just the regular Joe, the average guy. Oh, that guy's super nice. You know what I mean? He would never hurt a fly. Oh, and then they find out the crimes that they commit, and they're just completely shocked because it's like, ah, oh, he was such a nice guy. And Herb was a really he was a weird guy but he was a very friendly guy unless you crossed him then you know he had that whole ego trip where he thought he was better than everybody but you know i do generally believe like i said that she was just you know suspected something wasn't right whether it was she suspected that he could be homosexual and didn't want to believe it because it would have it would completely destroy her image it would completely destroy the family dynamic that they had and you know she knew at the end of the day she would eventually have to leave and for good and uh just didn't want to believe it to be true so she held on to the idea that no i'm just it's my mind playing tricks on me but whether that's how she actually felt i don't know all right so here's where things start to get really messed up for the baumeisters in 1994, 13 year old Eric Baumeister was playing in a wooded area on Fox Hollow Farm when he discovered a partially buried human skeleton. He ran for his mother, who then ran to find Herb. But Herb had an explanation. He said that while cleaning the garage, he found the remains which his father, the doctor, had previously used for his studies. Upon finding the remains, Herb took them to the back of the farm and buried them. That's actually pretty clever. It is, and Juliana believed him. That's actually brilliant. It was pretty damn smart on his behalf, which shows you in the future. That shows right. That shows you the level of his depravity, right? And whether or not he gave it any forethought into, oh shit! Well, if anybody finds this stuff buried on our property, this is what I'm going to tell him. And Juliana absolutely believed him. Oh, well, then who the hell did that skeleton belong to if, you know, if she thought it was her father-in-law's? Okay, well, let's just bury him in the backyard, like pet cemetery style shit going on. Upon opening their second store, the business took a turn for the worst. Herb was losing money fast, and he began drinking heavily. He would arrive at his stores drunk and unruly, acting in a belligerent manner towards employees and customers. The stores began to look more and more like the Fox Hollow Mansion, dirty and in disarray. At night, unbeknownst to his family, Herb began perusing the local gay bars. He would come home drunk and retreat to the pool house. During this time, as the Baumeisters attempted to keep their life and business together, a murder investigation was underway in Indianapolis. Do, do, do. Here we go. Virgil Vandegriff was a well-respected retired sheriff in the Indianapolis area. Upon his retirement from the sheriff's department, he opened a private investigation firm he called Vandegriff & Associates. In June 1994, Vandegriff was contacted by the mother of Alan Broussard, a 28-year-old man who was, according to his mother, currently missing. The last time Alan's mother saw him, she said he was headed to meet his partner at a gay bar called Brothers in the Indianapolis area. Soon, another distraught mother reached out to Vandegriff. Roger Goodlett had gone missing in July of the same year, also stating that his de- last destination was to be a gay bar in Indianapolis. 
Vandegrift began distributing missing persons flyers in the area. He interviewed friends of the missing men. The only clue as to Roger Goodlett's disappearance was that he was last seen on the night he disappeared getting into a blue car with Ohio tags. Vandegrift soon received a call from the publisher of a gay magazine who wanted to make him aware of multiple cases of missing gay men in the Indianapolis area over the past few years. Could all of these disappearances have been linked? Vandegrift became convinced that they were, and he took the cases to the Indianapolis Police Department. Sadly, these men were low priority, as most of the officers believed these men had simply skipped town in order to live their lifestyles free from judgment of family and the community. Vandegrift also learned of the murders of several young gay men in Ohio between 1989 and 1991. Let me stop you right there. Why is it that every time I hear any kind of murder investigation where people suspect that their loved ones have gone missing. And I'm not in law enforcement, and I don't know, but I just find it odd that every time they always say, oh, they probably ran away, like, especially if it's, like, children. Like, you know, there's some kids that have a history of running away. They've ran away before, but, you know, it just immediately jump into the fact, oh, he just skipped town, he skipped town. Like, I don't understand why that's the first thought that everyone thinks. Well, I think when you're talking about statistics, you know, probably 95% of those cases are better. That's probably the situation. People leave because they don't want to be found. This was one of those rare situations that that was just actually the truth. So it was probably, and again, because of the time period that you're talking about, the you know late 80s, early 90s, these homosexual men were probably just believed to leave because either they didn't want to come out to their families, they had partners in other areas, they just wanted to according to these people, you know, live their own lives free of judgment. And so they left, you know, in the, in these thoughts, they left because they just wanted to start over somewhere else. I can see that. Maybe I sound stupid, but... No, because when you're reading through this shit, you're like, why the hell would they just automatically assume that these people just up and vanished? You know, that's just, you know, typically not the case. People just don't disappear that way. But if they do probably 99 times out of 100, they did so at their own fruition. They did it because they wanted to not be found. Makes sense, weebs. Thanks. Maybe I should have been a private eye. I guess there's still time for that, right? Or eyeing privates. (laughs) That's what I'm doing right now. (laughs) (laughs) JK. So again, during this time period, Vandegrift also learned of the murders of several young gay men in Ohio between 1989 and 1991. The bodies of these men had been found dumped along Interstate 70, earning them the name the I-70 murders. Four of these young men, however, were from Indianapolis. Within a few weeks, Vandegrift was contacted by a man. Okay, back up. Listener discretion advised from this point on, take the kids out of the room, parents put your headphones on, because this is where it gets graphic. Within a few weeks, Vandegrift was contacted by a man who wished to remain anonymous, but relayed a story that he was sure had an association with the disappearance of Roger Goodlett. For our purposes in this story, we'll call the man Charlie. Charlie told Vandegrift that can he- we call him Chuck? We can call him Chuck if you prefer. Yeah. Okay. Charlie told Vandegrift that he was at a local gay bar when he noticed a man carefully studying a missing person flyer of Roger Goodlett, who happened to be a friend of Charlie's. 
Charlie became convinced that the man knew something about Roger's disappearance, so he introduced himself. The man said his name was Brian Smart and that he was from Ohio and in the landscaping business. When Charlie continued to ask questions in regards to Roger's disappearance, Brian would just change the subject. As the evening went on, Brian invited Charlie back to a house that he said he was temporarily living in while he did work for the owners. He told Charlie that the house had an indoor pool and they could enjoy a night swim. Charlie agreed and he followed Brian to his car, a blue Buick with Ohio tags. Remember that from earlier in the story? Uh huh. Making sense now. We are tying it all together. We're connecting, baby. We're making connections. We're investigators. All right. Charlie was unfamiliar with the area and could not remember how to return there, but recalled that the home was called something, quote, farm, and had a large home with a horse ranch and split rail fence. Charlie said the inside of the home was largely cluttered with boxes and furniture. They walked through the house into an indoor pool room. The pool had a bar and was surrounded by, guess what it was surrounded by? What? Mannequins. Ooh. Oh. Brian offered Charlie a drink, but he declined. Brian excused himself from the pool room for a few minutes, but when he returned, he was far more chatty, almost on a high. Charlie suspected Brian had done some type of drug, maybe cocaine. During the course of the conversation, Brian brought up the topic of autoerotic asphyxiation. Now, for those of you who are unaware of this term, this basically means you choke someone during intercourse, which is supposed to heighten sexual pleasure. Charlie agreed to it, and he choked Brian with a pool hose while Brian masturbated. Then Brian said it was Charlie's turn. Charlie agreed, but while Brian choked him, it became obvious that his intention was different. Brian would not let go. Charlie pretended to pass out, and Brian released the hose from around his neck. However, when Charlie, quote, woke up, Brian panicked. Charlie was considerably larger than Brian, and he was convinced this was the only reason he survived the encounter. Brian drove Charlie back to Indianapolis, and they agreed to meet again the following week. Charlie told Vandegrift they were meeting again in just a few days. Vandegrift arranged to have someone follow Charlie when he met Brian for the second time. However, Brian did not show up for their scheduled meeting and the trail went cold. Vandegriff again turned his information over to local police, but this time to a detective named Mary Wilson. Wilson drove Vandegriff through the affluent areas of Indianapolis, hoping they would recognize the house from Charlie's description. Unfortunately, he did not, and it would be another full year before any new information came about in the case. So the only reason he believed he survived, I mean, was he one of the only credible survivors of this whole incident? From my research, he was the only person who came forward and recounted any type of encounter with, quote, Brian Smart to any of the authorities. So really, as we listen to this, this is, this is what broke the case. His information is what broke the case wide open against Baumeister. Strangely enough, this new information came, once again, from Charlie. He told Mary that he and Brian ran into one another at another gay bar, and Charlie was able to get Brian's license plate number. Charlie passed the information along to Mary, who ran the plate. The plates did not belong to Brian Smart. They did, however, belong to her Baumeister. 
Mary wasted no time. She decided to confront Herb at his store. She told him he was a suspect in the dis disappearance of several men and asked Herb if he would be willing to let police search his home. Herb refused, telling Mary she would have to contact his attorney. Mary went to the county officials next, attempting to get a search warrant for the Baumeister home. The county refused, though, stating Mary did not have enough evidence to support her claims. However, during this time, Mary had also reached out to Juliana Baumeister, inquiring about her husband's habits and whereabouts during the time of these crimes. Juliana also refused to let authorities conduct a search of Fox Hollow Farms at that time, claiming that her husband would never be involved in something so heinous. However, that seed of doubt had been planted and began to grow in the fragile mind of Juliana Baumeister. And we told her that we felt that her husband might be somehow involved. Julie refuses to let investigators onto her property, but she asks her legal advisor, Bill Wendling, to contact police for more information. Well, I was certainly taken back when they believed they had a witness, they believed they had a car identification, they believed that they had a property location. Julie was, was really quite shocked uh, to hear this. And uh, I asked her, is there anything that you may know or you have seen or heard that would give some credibility to this story? And then Julie divulges a haunting secret. She revealed to me for the first time that several months earlier, her son was out playing in their wooded yard. Apparently he had found a skull and brought it to the house. Julie was stunned and wanted answers. And she certainly wanted to talk to Mr. Baumeister about that. And he explained to her that that was a skeleton that was out of his dad's medical practice. And there was really no further discussion about that. But she never went to the police. He said that a few days after she had discovered that skeletal remains, that she had gone back out there and it was gone. And uh, I think she was somewhat fearful about, uh, you know, saying something to the police and not being able to substantiate it and then have to deal with him. Julie refuses to let her attorney reveal this disturbing secret to police. Meanwhile, frustrated investigators search for more creative ways to access Baumeister's property. One of the avenues that we pursued to try to build probable cause for a search warrant to go on the property, sans permission from Julie or Herb, uh, was... Yeah, that's the point I was trying to make, is it was something she knew for a long time, I think. Something was happening, and she just put it out of her mind that, no, 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 there's no way this could be my husband, there's no way this could be happening to me, till things started coming to light that maybe... You Until know, it's one of them things you find something out about somebody and you don't want to believe it. You know, you don't want to believe that this is true. And then the more you dig deep into that person or think of past events of things they've done or the way they'd act in a certain, you know, situation, you start to like the seeds of doubt do start to come in, you know, to focus like this this could be this could be real and your whole world turns upside down. I mean, I'm dealing with that right now. There's somebody that I know who uh, came off as a nice person, and you find, you know, you found out little things about them that, you know, they went somewhere for committing a certain crime, and you're like, no, nah, you know, maybe it was a misunderstanding. But 
the more you dig, dig deep into it, the more you find out, like, it was a lot worse than what, you know, they perceived it to be. And now you just have all these doubts in your mind, like, and you hear comments that this, this person makes and you're like, man, this stuff could be real. I mean, this could be a real problem for a lot of people in the future. You start connecting the dots to all of these little things, like you said, these little droplets that are, you know, things that are said here and there that normally, you know, separately, you would never think anything about. But when somebody from the outside brings it to your attention and you start to put those pieces together, you're like, shit, this could have been something really terrible that all along, you know, this person has been hiding behind this veil of innocence when they're really about to strike on their next victim. Exactly. Over the next six months, the Baumeister's world collapsed. Juliana filed for divorce and the couple was facing bankruptcy. The worry and doubt had eaten away at her mind. She picked up the phone and called Detective Mary Wilson. She advised her of the skeleton previously found on the farm. Herb was away with their son Eric that weekend visiting his mother. If you want to search the property, Juliana told Mary, you need to do it now. On June 24, 1996, Mary Wilson and three police officers arrived at Fox Hollow Farms to conduct a search of the property. As the police examined the grounds, they began to notice what looked like small pebbles in the area where the Baumeister children played. The rocks, though, looked strange. Samples were taken, and in just a day, officers had the answers they'd been searching for. The samples collected from Fox Hollow were not rocks. They were fragments of bone. Within 24 hours, police swarmed the Baumeister residence. Bones were found everywhere, even on the neighboring property. In a matter of a few days, 5,500 bone fragments and human teeth were collected at Fox Hollow Farm. I'm going to repeat that number again. 5,500 individual human remains were found at Fox Hollow. Now, from what I know about this case, from just the years of like, you know, looking at it and trying to, you know, because I, I, I've never visited Fox Hollow Farm and it's a place that I really would love to investigate. I would really love to go there. And especially now, because we have this podcast that we're doing and we're trying to tie these two things together, I would love to go. But what I know, I mean, was he burning the bodies? Didn't he have a burn pile out back? He was taking the bodies and burning them. That's what they suspected he was doing. That's why they, all they found was scatter. I mean, he would take the bones, what was left, and scatter them. He did have a burn pile out back, but they the bones were so scattered that they didn't really know. They were never able to determine how the bodies were disposed of, basically. Burned, dismembered. They were just scattered everywhere like ashes across the property. And that's pretty... I mean, that's pretty heinous, you know what I mean? And, and that, that leads into the whole thing why some of these victims were never identified because they could not find a whole body. They no. just found fragments they of just bones found all pieces. over the place. Yeah, 5,500 pieces of people just across this property strewn about, like I said, just like ashes in the air, just like he had thrown them up and the wind scattered them. I mean, that's fucked up, man. That's, that's really, really fucked up. Yeah, it is. And it just, it makes you think about the level of depravity yeah depravity we said before it's the depravity of this crime is unreal you're also talking about somebody who as a child 
was labeled schizophrenic, multiple personality disorders, but there are never any records of him receiving any type of treatment. So when you think about, you know, the fact that it was the 1950s and 60s, his parents probably didn't want that label of, you know, we've got a crazy kid. No, but from all the research we've done, like from the stuff going to Madison and everything for they try to block out a lot of that stuff. They don't want people to know. Like you said, they don't want people to know because they don't want the label. People would drop off their peop- the, their family members who they thought were psychotic or whatever and just they like, we, we don't want anything to do it. We don't want that, that reputation in our family. And it something that you talked about earlier that really kind of like sticks with me. And I'm sure if you dig down the rabbit hole deep enough, you can find why his parents sent him away. But it said that it was never determined why they sent him away. He must have done something really heinous. You know, that could have been his first murder. Just like Ed Kemper. He created, he, he killed his grandparents when he was 15 years old. I mean, he was a teenage boy. He wasn't even a man. He was a boy. And he committed a horrible crime. Knew that he did it. Turned himself in, but he knew he did it. He dressed his parents or his grandparents up in bed. You know what I mean? Laid them in bed and made them look, you know, like they were asleep. But he was 15 years old. So maybe Herb did something very unspeakable at such a young age, but his parents didn't want it to be known. I they think, didn't want that label. So he was already married. The only time that he was ever institutionalized was after he was already married to Juliana. And it said that his dad had him institutionalized. I think Dr. Baumeister knew far more about Herb's uh, depravities and the things that he was doing and thinking. And I think he took a lot of that to his grave with him because he was probably trying to protect not only his son, but you got to remember, he was a well-respected doctor in this community. He was trying to save his own ass at this point. I think it's just my personal thought that Dr. Baumeister probably knew a lot of the shit that went on with Herb and hid it to protect everybody. Yeah, that makes sense because at the end of the day, people care only about their reputations. And exactly. That's kind of sad, but you know, if you know for a fact that you have a, it's like I told my my kid, I will love you no matter what you do. Even if you murder somebody, I will still love you. But there comes down to a right and a wrong. And if you know something, and this goes out to everybody who knows something about somebody, even if it's their own son, if they're doing something unspeakable, you still need to report it because you're putting other people's lives in danger. By the time the excavation was completed, it was estimated that the bones were from 11 men. However, only four of them could be identified. The men found on the Baumeister property were Manuel Resendez, age 31, Richard Hamilton, 20, Stephen Hill, 26, and Roger Goodlett. 34. Roger's friend Charlie had been right all along. Once the news of the discovery of the bodies was aired on the local news, Herb Baumeister vanished. On July 3rd, Herb's body was discovered in his parked car in Pinery Park, Ontario, a single gunshot wound to the head his cause of death. Alongside his body was a three-page suicide note. In the note, he claimed that his reasoning for taking his life was his failing marriage and business. At no point did he make mention of the bodies found at Fox Hollow Farm. With Juliana's help, police were able to piece together more evidence 
that Herb Baumeister was, in fact, the I-70 Strangler. Receipts Herb kept showed that he had traveled I-70 during the times of these murders. Also, bodies had stopped being dumped on I-70 at the same time the Baumeisters had purchased Fox Hollow Farm. This is where it confuses me because I've heard both scenarios. I heard one that he was found in his car. I also heard another scenario. Wasn't he was found in Canada? Yes. Correct? Yes, he was in Canada. And one scenario says that he was found in a wo- in woods surrounded by a bunch of dead birds and he killed himself in a ritualistic manner. Really? Yeah, I had heard that before too. And that actually was played out in Ghost Adventures and I don't know if that was something that they discovered and just made, you know, a huge thing about, but everything I've ever read said that he killed himself in his car. Right. That's what I found. So I don't understand where that rumor came from, but, it, you know, I, I know that they played it out in Ghost Adventures for sure. And uh, it just didn't seem it's when I first heard that, I was like, that doesn't seem right to me. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if you delve, dove into that with any of your research or not, but I, I just found that whole thing like it, it's. It's something that I, I heard a couple times before, and it just didn't make sense to me. Like, no, and I don't know if they just tried to play the whole occult angle because of the haunting that, you know, occurs at Fox Hollow Farm from the tragedies that happen there. But I don't know. What I want to know is that the one survivor, the story that he told of what happened, that's where they based their theory on how all these men were killed, correct? They, they said that he would bring them back. And they would swim in the pool, and he would he they think that he murdered every single one of these men in the pool when he the ones that he brought back to Fox Hollow Farm. That was the whole basis of the stories that they think because of this one guy's uh, story that killed everybody in the pool. But there's also eyewitness accounts, not eyewitness accounts, but we'll get into the paranormal eyewitness accounts. But there was also another uh, house on the property, like a guest house, where he they think that he murdered another guy up there because there was a bunch of slash marks and that kind of stuff found in that guest house. And as we dive into the whole paranormal aspect of the hauntings at Fox Hollow Farm, we'll talk a little bit about where they think that stuff came from. But it's kind of strange that, you know, they still have no idea what exactly happened at this property no technically there are still 24 men missing no i'm sorry i don't do math in my head well 23 because they were only able 27 were missing from this area that they thought could be associated with the i-70 strangler and baumeister but only four of the 11 bodies that were recovered were ever identified. So technically, 23 of these men are still missing. Were they probably her Baumeister's victims? Yes, but that's the really sad, fucked up part about this is that there are still 23 families out there who have never had any closure to their loved ones just disappearing. It is. It's, it's, it's really sad. And you would have thought if the guy had a set of balls on him, being like Mr. I'm better than everybody else. If he knew he was going to take his own life, if he was going to take the cowardly way out instead of facing justice, that he would at least gave these people some kind of closure by saying, yes, I killed all these people, but he didn't. He was a sack of shit and he just offed himself and now we'll never really know what happened. And it sucks. 
it's it's really heartbreaking for the families. My hearts go out to all these people that still have no idea what happened to their family members. But I do believe her Baumeister was the culprit for killing all these people and dumping their bodies on I-70 and then dumping their bodies also on his property. Because I know two or three years after the investigation happened on the property, they were still finding bones on the property. The new owners actually found you know, new potential bodies of victims on the property. And I think that if you searched hard enough now on the property, you'd probably still find remains of humans. And the really terrible part, what really kind of digs deep in my gut is the fact that these men were overlooked. And I think a lot of uh, the biggest reason was because they were gay. And they just thought, like we talked about before, it was just assumed that they ran away from home, basically. But these were people, obviously, who had close relationships, you know, two of their mothers. If the mothers had never reported these men missing, these cases probably never would have been broken. So, you know, kudos to these mothers for reaching out and say not being ashamed of their children and their lifestyle at a time when, you know, it's sad to say it was still such a social stigma that a lot of parents hid that about their children too. And so it goes back again to me talking about Dr. Baumeister. Maybe Dr. Baumeister realized that his son was gay. You know, in the past, people were institutionalized for being homosexual because they thought it was some type of mental disorder. And so maybe after he met Juliana and they got married, something happened and Dr. Baumeister thought he could send his son away to cure his, quote, problem. That's really what I think. I think that after he married Juliana, I think she and Dr. Baumeister realized that Herb was gay and that they had him sent away for that reason. I just want to say one more thing. If there's anybody out there, if you hear this episode of this podcast and you have any information that could lead authorities, investigators to, you know, possibly finding out who some more of these victims are. If you yourself were a victim of her, her Baumeister and you were there and you somehow managed to escape, come forward, tell your story, because there are still so many men missing that could have potentially been victims of her Baumeister. And especially to the families of the men, those 23 men who technically remain missing. You know, DNA evidence has come so far since 1994. So many more things could be discovered. And like you said, if the current owners of Fox Hollow are open to authorities taking more remains from their property that have been found. If you're the parents of one of these missing men, maybe that could be your child. And so I think that would be, if it were my family member, I would want to know. I would want, even if it's just a tiny bone fragment of my loved one, I would want to be able to say, we found you and we have given you the proper burial and now you can rest. And so to those family members, I think I would say, you know, there's still time and there's still, especially now, the ability with forensics to find your loved ones if you suspect that he could have been one of Herb's victims. 
So we will be back in two weeks for part two of the intriguing story of Herb Baumeister. And part two will cover the hauntings of Fox Hollow Farm. So we'll see you guys again in two weeks. Thank you for listening to another episode of Serial Spirits. Any parting words there, Weeby? Bye, guys. Stay creepy, kids. We'll see you soon. Next time on Serial Spirits, the podcast. Made contact with me that said that he had been with somebody and had taken him to a house on the north side of some strange things that happened to him at the house. Now, I've been married 25 years. She never told me anything even remotely like that. That's how the spirits communicate with the living, by the mere thoughts of the things of the past. Okay, that's the native way. He was intelligent, but there were, he still had this uh, this horror about him. Every time he came in, he just never, he never stopped. He always asked me to come up. Indicated that he met him at a gay bar and that they left the bar and drove north uh, out of Indianapolis. In 1996, this whole area was very remote. It was just something that was a big wall saying, no, don't. He indicated that they made several turns around, so he wasn't 100% sure which way they'd gone. He talked about his property up here, and that uh, to come up and see it, which again I thought was a strange thing to ask for something else The law of averages. Ask enough people, and eventually you'll get someone to take you up on your offer. They came into the house, uh, went to the uh, basement where there was an indoor swimming pool. A lot of investigators wouldn't have taken this case. And Mr. Fandegriff did because of his background in homicide investigations. And, and around the swimming pool or in the area of the swimming pool was mannequins. said that his name was uh, Brian Smart and that he was a caretaker of the property while the property owner was out of town. You know, you just have someone who's mentally unstable and who is the epitome of where a serial killer starts. They were in the basement of the house at the swimming pool level. And uh, they did some uh, alcohol, uh, did some cocaine. As he told the informant, I've had accidents. After they played around for a while, they... Thing even remotely like that. That's how the spirits communicate with the living, by the mere thoughts of the things of the past. Okay, that's the native way. He was intelligent, but there were, he still had this uh, this horror about him. Every time he came in, he just never he never stopped. He always asked me to come up. He indicated that he met him at a gay bar and that they left the bar and drove north uh, out of Indianapolis. In 1996, this whole area was very remote. It was just something that was a big wall saying. Don't
he indicated that they made several turns around, so he wasn't 100% sure which way they'd gone. He talked about his property up here and that uh, to come up and see it, which again I thought was a strange thing to ask for some nursing on. The law of averages. Ask enough people, and eventually you'll get someone to take you up on your offer. They came into the house, uh, went to the uh, basement where there was an indoor swimming pool. A lot of investigators wouldn't have taken this case, and Mr. Vandegrift did because of his background in homicide investigations. And, and around the swimming pool, or in the area of the swimming pool, was mannequins. The person I met had said that his name was uh, Brian Smart, and that he was a caretaker of the property while the property owner was out of town. You know, you just have someone who's mentally unstable and who is the epitome of where a serial killer starts. They were in the basement of the house at the swimming pool level. And uh, they did some uh, alcohol, uh, did some cocaine. As he told the informant, I've had accidents. After they played around for a while, they... Thank you for listening to another episode of the Serial Spirits Podcast. Follow us on all your social media apps, facebook.com forward slash Serial Spirits, on Twitter at Serial Spirits. Listen to us on all podcasting platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you subscribe. Follow us on our mothership at paranormalwarehouse.com. Until next time, guys... Be aware and be safe.